Good morning. So I know this is a silly question, but I ask it anyway. Is there a best life? Is there a life that's terrible? Is there a life that's good, better, and then is there one that's best? And secondly, is that best life in the grasp of every person, or is it just for a select few? Some say that artificial intelligence is going to give the world its best life. That it is surpassed, it surpassed humanity, right? Someday it, and someday it will. And in terms of raw intelligence, of course, it already has. But in being human, especially the part of humanity that's the best of us and what's the worst of us, it'll never accomplishment accomplish it. Artificial intelligence lacks common sense. It'll always lack the qualities that make humans wonderful and make humans terrible. Because of that, AI lacks a sense of humor. One man said to another, I know a man with a wooden leg named Smith. The man replied, what's the name of his other leg? Stupid joke. But AI would take it literally. Here's another one. This one I got from Alan. Elmer Fudd and uh, Sylvester walk into a distillery. Sylvester pauses and says, do you think it's whiskey? Elmer Fudd replies, not as whiskey as wobbing a bank. <laughs> I love that joke. AI will never get that joke, nor any other, really. I point this out because the true life, the best life, which is totally within the grasp of every living human being, imagine that. That's a profound thing to know, that the best life is in the grasp of every single human being, but the best life for a human can only be lived by the word of God. Only. I tell you that by the authority of the creator of all life. And there is no compromise to it. None. No other philosophy. No other ideology. No other plans. No amount of material stuff is ever going to do it. The best life must be lived on the word of God. So I bring up AI. Well, in every AI, I guarantee you there's a downloaded Bible. There's a Bible in its memory. But and if you and I could download the entire Bible into our memory, it wouldn't matter. Because the Bible itself, which is the source, it is the Word of God, has to be understood, has to be believed, it has to be lived and as you know, many of you know, that the Word of God is filled with things that are hard to understand, some things easy to understand, some things confusing. It, it comes in a variety of ways. There's poetry, there's prophecy, there's history, there's narrative, there's eschatology, end times, there's order and commands. There, it's full of stuff that are fully seamless 
and uh, no AI, though it has downloaded itself, downloaded it, no AI will ever be like Christ. And you have to be human to be like Christ. One of the things you have to have is a sense of humor. But you have to have a lot of other things too, not just a sense of humor. Think of how Christ was. He wasn't one note, that's for sure. He's completely and fully human. The best life is in your grasp, especially you guys. You know the Word of God. You're believers. The best life is truly within your grasp. I, I, I would suspect that many of you are living it, and you know that. So we'll reaffirm that today. Um, so let's open up in prayer. Let's give thanks to our Lord for the grace that he has so provided us through his word, the gift of his son that makes this all so real and makes it available to us. Let's thank him for the sacrifice of his son, and let's just open in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the grace to be together. Thank you that we were all able to be here, and we thank you for those who listen online who are a part of our family. We thank you for our family that are all over the world that are your children, your children because of the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ as our substitute on the cross. It is through faith in him and him alone, faith alone in him, that makes us the new humanity, that makes us new creatures with eternal life. And with that eternal life, we have now the ability to live the best life. It's the life that pleases you, the life that your son lived. We are in awe, Father, of such a gift. And we must, uh, we know, be humble to learn it, to, uh, to live it, to walk it. And uh, may your spirit, Father, today through your word help us along to walk it even greater than we ever have. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please. Oh, 
beyond the measure that he should give his only son and make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory
Uh, we're going to start in John 1. Yeah, we're already to the Gospel of John. So you just missed Matthew. That's how fast I am. Just kidding. Yeah, it was fast. Too fast. So, uh, what is the meaning of life? This is a question that everybody has eventually. Some ignore it. Some are troubled by it, and then they ignore it. For some, uh, it's a pathway of the gospel. What is the meaning of life? What is human life really? Is it just existence? These are questions that are generally dealt with by philosophers. Uh, But we as those who are uh, believers, every believer should at some level be a philosopher. Everybody ponders or at least thinks about these questions from time to time. Then they usually push by them. People uh, generally will uh, be disturbed by such questions. Uh, God, I think, works this so that many circumstances come together or people where all of a sudden, without you even expecting it, I mean, everybody everywhere, all of a sudden this, this very deep and disturbing question about your own existence comes upon your soul. But then you can pick up your smartphone, get on social media, turn on the football game, go to work, whatever, and just forget about it. The so-called midlife crisis. This has always intrigued me. I think I went through one just recently, which means I'm going to live to be 114. The so-called midlife crisis happens when you're old enough to know that death is real because, well, all of a sudden it's really close. And you've lived long enough to know that you haven't lived up to your dreams. So you look in the past and you're like, ugh, I can't have Elmer Fudd up there while I'm doing this. Here, that's the Sistine Chapel. That's a little bit better. You're looking at your past and you're like, well, that's terrible. And then you're looking at your future, and you're like, well, that's terrible. And you're stuck in the middle. It's like being in a crosswalk in a busy street. Some people start, they respond to their midlife crisis by dressing younger. I've seen somebody do this. They bought a, a sport car and got clothes, young clothes, and combed their hair different, or got a younger haircut, and they look ridiculous. Buy a bunch of new stuff, take up yoga or something like that. Soon enough, you realize that there's nothing you can do about your dreams. You're too old to fulfill them anyway. Why start now? And then you're reserved. Yeah, you're reserved as a matter of fact that you are going to die. So, crisis averted. When you look at life from a distance, and generally we can't do this to ourselves because we live in the moment, but when you read in a book, say a character in a book, especially in the Bible, You know, know, in the Bible, you can read the life of somebody in a chapter. 
It's amazing that they can go through their whole lives not finding the answer to the important question of why am I here and what am I supposed to do? What am I, is my purpose? Some never consider them. And they live their whole lives basically worthless and they die. I'm sure there are multiple points in a person's life where there are many variables, as I said, come together, people, events, time, all coalesce into some pivotal moment where a person's conscience is faced with deep, deep questions concerning the meaning and purpose of life. Um, it recently, I was incredibly troubled by something that I've never been troubled by before. And uh, I, you know, I, I took my own advice from the pulpit, and I went and found scripture that applied to it. It is amazing. I'm, it works. You know? It actually works, um, and crisis averted. What was amazing about it is I'm no, really no better at the thing that I was concerned about. But, and I'm, but I'm on my way. There's, I have a goal in mind. I'm not there. And I was anxious about this goal. I was worried about failure. It was tearing me up. But then I taught on the temptations of Christ. And I'm like, wait a minute. I can find Scripture that particularly applies to this. And I found it. It wasn't hard to find. And the looking was joyous. You know, because when I started looking, of course I used my computer and my concordance, but when I started looking, I knew the answer was in here. And that made it super fun to go find it. Right? If you're, you know, Indiana, when Indiana Jones is in the cave, you know that the idol or whatever he's after is in there. But imagine you're an archaeologist and you're digging a hole and you're like, well, I've been at this for 10 years and I've found nothing. But imagine you knew that the skeleton was down there. Wouldn't it be way more fun to dig? Ultimately, the answer to the questions I just posed is in the one life that is of the one man who lived it. Jesus Christ. Look at John 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. These short words are powerful. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Don't reverse those. He's not the light. He's the life. And the life is the light. If we're not living the life, we're not shining that light. So in him was life. Well, what life? He's human, right? So, but there's a particular life to Jesus Christ that is of an incredibly unique manner of life. It's a life that no human ever lived before. And sure enough, he gave it to us. That's really the, the definition of his title as Messiah, Messiah is a substitute. There's a preposition that's used all throughout the New Testament, who pair, and who pair means on behalf of. And it's always used of Christ who pair and you're the object. On behalf of you. So when he goes through his trials, on behalf of you. When he dies, on behalf of you. When he resurrects, on behalf of you. So what he has done becomes ours. And who he is becomes ours. It's a gift. 
And that's why I say this life, the best life, is right in your, is right in your grasp. He's the light of the world. And he shined forth to the world. Every person alive and dead, therefore, should have his life. However, look at the next verse. The light shines in the darkness in verse 5. And the darkness did not comprehend it. It would seem that John is saying here, this is his prologue to his gospel, that, that nobody saw it. No, it's those who are in the dark didn't see it. Because the darkness, Jesus would say in John chapter 3 that the darkness hates the light. So the light came and those who wanted to remain in darkness did. <clears throat> Sistine Chapel. What is, the reason why I put this up is that it's been lost to the modern world the opposite of eternal life. In other words, the dread of it. What has been lost in the modern and postmodern world is the understanding and dread of what is the alternative to eternal life. Uh, in this, here's, I know, I, it's super hard to see, I know. We'll have a field trip to the Sistine Chapel someday. That's Jesus in the middle. And there's a, there's a guy, you go on, uh, if you go on Google, even on Wikipedia, you can zoom into this picture. I had super fun. I played uh, Mozart's Requiem in the background. So if you've never heard that, it's this, this operatic opera, this dun, dun, you know, because, uh, and there's all kinds of characters here you can find out. Over here is Peter, and he's holding the keys to the kingdom and all that. But the guy I wanted to focus on is down here. And uh, this is him. His name is, I had to look it up, Charon. Charon is the guy in Greek mythology who took you across the river Styx on his boat. Michelangelo put him in, let me get rid of my ink here. Uh, Michelangelo put him in his picture, and these are all the doomed. They don't look happy. In fact, uh, it, we find out archaeologically, ironically enough, in ancient burial sites, there's sometimes found money that is buried with people, and they think it is the belief that they had to pay this guy to get across the river, and so they put some money in the grave. It's not going to help you. <laughs> that was Keith's joke. Keith's joke. He said, uh, the one good joke Keith has had in his life and he told it to me, and, and it goes something like, you know, a very rich man was told by God that he was going to die soon, and, that, and the guy's like, oh, man, I, can't I bring something? God's like, no, you can't bring anything. The man begged him and begged him, can I bring something? And he's like, all right, I'll let you bring one thing. So the guy shows up at the pearly gates with a huge briefcase, and St. Peter asks him what's in the briefcase, and he opens it up, and it's gold. And Peter says, oh, you brought pavement. Right, Keith? You've got a laugh out of that, man. That's awesome. <laughs> Streets are paved with gold. You brought dirt with you. Good job. And it's actually really appropriate to what we're going to look at today. Because so many people in our world, right, think gold, money, wealth, and everything else that goes with it. I mean, the philosophy of Karl Marx, right? You know, this Marxist that took over really the Western world is that the key to man's happiness is to make everybody on an equal playing field economically 
and by class. You know, to bring down those who were rich and powerful and to lift up the working man. Even if it, it'll never happen, but even if it did, you're going to have a bunch of miserable people with the same income as opposed to a bunch of miserable people with differing incomes. <clears throat> the temptation from Satan to Christ sets the stage for Christ to tell the world what the meaning of life is. Look at Matthew 4. Go to Matthew 4, 1. Not only what it is, but what its purpose is. This is disturbing. We're on the wrong channel up there. See if I can do it. No? Did I just change mine here? Okay. All right. Sorry. Do what? Oh! They both fixed. Excellent. So now I can see myself up there. I'm sitting there and go, hello, handsome. I can only say that because it's so far away. All I am is a blur. <laughs> Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. There's many parts of this. We're going to look at them all because this, this temptation to Christ carries itself throughout the rest of the gospel. Because he's going to be tempted all through his life. And all of those temptations he's going to face in the future can all be traced back to here. <clears throat> it's important that he becomes hungry. We'll find out why. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Deuteronomy 8.3, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, you know, there's many questions. Why is he led into the wilderness by the Spirit? My interpretation of this is that he is Israel. He is fulfilling all things Israel, and Israel failed in the wilderness for 40 years. And here he goes to succeed in the wilderness in 40 days. Um, <clears throat> and this question, if you are the Son of God, is not to get Jesus to question if he is the Son of God, but... Again, in my estimation, it's to get Jesus to question, is the plan of the Father at all right for me? Should the Son of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, be in the wilderness for 40 days with nothing to eat and be hungry? Suffering? Should he? Jesus knows the answer to that. Satan is trying to get him to doubt the answer to that. But the main thing to me here is, and the main idea well, this is more of a question, not the idea, but what is the true human life? I mean, is it things like this that you see on a monitor if you're fortunate enough to be hooked up to a hospital bed? Uh, you know, are all those numbers and beeps and all that, is that the real you? Life is physical living. Right? You didn't come to church to find that out. You already knew it. Life is physical living. That's a no-brainer. So he says, not that man doesn't live on bread. He uses the Greek word monos here, or mono, which is alone. Man shall not live on bread alone. So we need bread. We need to be alive. But what's not intuitive to the human race 
is that human life has lived in the soul, in thinking. To the human race in general, not intuitive. If you know the philosopher Descartes, he's, he's I think his name is, he has this, I think, therefore I am. That's what he's famous for. What he means there is that, uh, you know, one who can think and has a self-consciousness, has a true existence. Well, true. But what you think, if you're thinking, you mean, all right, I'm human because I'm thinking. But what are you thinking? And when the pressure comes, when when you have to deal with your own personal anxiety because of a person or a circumstance, what are you thinking then? When you have to deal with something new that you've never faced before. It's one thing a human can do. It can deal with something new. You know, AI can't do that. But a human can. A human can deal with something he's never experienced before. And and we're going to experience a lot of that in the Christian life. And it's called testing. Uh, what What do you think then? Sometimes you don't know what to think. And then hopefully it dawns on you. You've got the mind of Christ right in your hand. Go find out what to think. And it works. It works beautifully. So financial tragedy hits you. You have no money. You know what? It has nothing to do with your life. Nothing. If the person you loved left you, it has nothing to do with your life. If you found out that you had cancer, it has nothing to do with your life. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, that's going to alter my life a lot. I know it will. I'm not saying it won't. But it has nothing actually to do with your life or any other number of tragedies. Guess what? Even death itself has nothing to do with your life. I mean, everybody dies. Not every man really lives. That was St. Mel Gibson who said that in uh, Braveheart. But it's true, isn't it? None of those things have anything to do with your life. How about prosperity? Prosperity has come upon you and you have plenty of money. You have good health. You have healthy, loving relationships Or maybe you're looking at someone else who has them and you don't and you're envious. It has nothing to do with your life. Nothing. So you can say, I'm having the time of my life. That was my title. Actually, that's not the title of today's message. I had had an epiphany today for a title. It's not, I'm having the time of my life. It's, I'm having the time of God's life. And it is, if my life is based upon the Word of God, then the things that happen to me, prosperity, adversity, tribulation, trouble, uh, circumstances, all of it, none of it is a part of my life. What is, is the Word of God. How I think in reaction or response to those things that happen to me or to the people and to my own soul even. Because I'm my own biggest test. How I respond to that by the word of God is what defines my life. 
and therefore my life is truly defined by the divine. Man lives by the word of God. Why does he do that? Why is life by the word of God? He says every man now, right? Every man. Because unbelievers are to be saved and live by the will of God. Why does man live by the word of God? Easy answer, it's the will of God. But why is a physical life without the word of God called by God not life? And in fact, as James and and Paul alludes to in Romans 8, James alludes to it clearly in James 2, that if you have faith and no works, you're dead. But you're not dead, dead. And he's writing to believers. Believe me, he's writing to believers. But God describes it as a sort of living death, that you're not actually living the life that you've been given. It's not the best life. It's actually not even close. The reason is because the Word of God alone creates a divine soul. Imagine you and me with a divine soul. It's a soul that breathes. You know, the word for soul, pneuma, is the word of spirit, sorry. Suke is soul. But the, your spirit, pneuma, is also a Greek word that means to breathe. It means wind. And your soul, your spirit, breathes in the manner of God. What happens to me is responded to by the word of God. In all three trials, we know this, Jesus quotes directly from Deuteronomy. Directly from Deuteronomy. He quotes the word of God. Now, the fact that he is quoting the word of God means that it is not a New Testament concept. Meaning, he's quoting the Old Testament, right? Man shall live by the word. So, not alone a New Testament concept. Think of, uh, I made me think of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel that through the vision of the statue that he had the kingdom of gold and he was the head, the king of this greatest kingdom. And that God was the one who interpreted the dream. Daniel, just like Joseph in Egypt, never when they asked Joseph to interpret dreams, when they asked Daniel to interpret dreams, remember this, if anybody asks you a Bible question, say, God will give you the answer. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's what they both said. God will answer this. But Nebuchadnezzar built himself a 90-foot statue of gold and said everybody bowed down to it. A statue of himself bowed down to it. So what did God respond to him? Nebuchadnezzar, you are going to live in the wilderness like an animal. And he did. And then he got... He got Jesus after that, for sure. <clears throat> Some discovered in the Old Testament that they had to live by the Word of God. Some did not. Abraham, Moses, David, all the prophets knew that life was only lived by the Word of God. <clears throat> and so, go to Hebrews 11, because we have the heroes there. Hebrews 11, verse 1.
Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By what? By faith. That faith, of course, in God's Word. By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the Word of God. You see that. All we see around us emanates from God's Word. And so when everything, everything you see, so the, the people who think that they've got to live by, that they're going to find life, the best life by money or by wealth or by prosperity or by, you know, even everything in their life is easy. Some people think their dream is that everything is easy. And in this, if you have a life without trials, you'll never live this life. You realize that. You have to have tons of them. Lots. Not, you know, not just short periods, but periods. I would say many short periods. Hopefully they're short. Um, and so, everything you see around you is made. By the word of God. How important is it? So he says, so that what is seen is not made by the things which are visible. Yeah, one of the uh, modern, postmodern things that mankind has done is kind of told himself that he has harnessed nature, that we control it. Right? Through, went through the Enlightenment age and then science came about and we actually figured out, well, now we know what gravity is, now we know what electromagnetism is. Now we know about atoms and molecules and nuclear forces and all of that. You saw Oppenheimer's movie. You know, we created the A-bomb. We've harvested. We're in control. How stupid. Do we look like we're in control of anything? We are not. The Word of God. The Word of God is filled with different types of biblical literature. Give me a minute, you'll see where I'm going with this. The Word of God has commandments. Now, in the commandments, say in Deuteronomy, for instance, as many commandments as there are in the Mosaic Law, following the commands are always associated with blessing. Following the commands are always associated with blessing. There's promises or covenants, if you will, and covenants produce hope. And confidence. The covenant was given to Abraham. The covenant was repeated to Isaac. And then the covenant was, re- covenant was repeated again to Jacob. At different times in their lives that God promised. One in Genesis 35 where he promises Jacob after Jacob returned home. He says, Jacob, this land is yours. You are going to be blessed exceedingly because I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have made a covenant with you, and it is unbreakable, even though you, Jacob, are a scoundrel. But I have established myself as the God of Israel, and you are my elect people. How does that make you feel? Well, if you're Jacob, it makes you feel great. And it gives you hope. How many promises are made to you and me? And there's inspiration. You can't live life without inspiration. I mean, you can. You can exist. But it's not very good unless you're inspired. Too many people not inspired. Just getting by, going from one distraction to the next. It's not inspiration. I find inspiration in the Psalms. 
Not just me, Christ as well. <clears throat> when Christ is hanging on the cross, what does he quote? Psalms. What is the book that is most quoted in the New Testament? I was going to ask you this question and see who, was, who could come to the head of the class, but I just gave you the hint. Right? The most quoted book in the New Testament is the Psalms. What, now, what's in the Psalms? Oh, there's all kinds of different Psalms. I wrote them all down in here. Doxological. Oh, doesn't that sound smart? Uh, doxolo- uh, doxology is a song of glorification to God. Tons of those. Glorifying God, there's lament Psalms. If you're going through a hard time and your heart is broken, those lament Psalms will just... Uh, they're not going to put a big smile on your face either. Right? We think the human solution is turn that frown upside down. Come on. Be happy. Christ was a man of sorrows, but yet without sin. The lament psalms give us this, yeah, like, you know, like David's heart was broken. So is, is it wrong for my heart to be broken? No, but there's a relationship with God here in that brokenness that will not lead to fear, not lead to worry about my brokenness. It's okay to be broken. It's actually important. Thanksgiving Psalms, royal Psalms, Psalms about the king, the king is coming. Those those are Psalms that say, oh yeah, I needed to hear that. I'm going to be in heaven soon with my king. He's coming back. All right, we'll read more of those as the election cycle gets closer. Right? When either King Trump or King Biden get in office, whoever gets in there, they will say, you know, look, don't get all wrapped up in it. The king is coming. And they're all going to bow to him. Pray Psalms. And you know what? What about when your enemies are after you? Imprecatory Psalms. Now, you've got to be careful with those. Those are the ones where you say, Oh, God, take the children of Babylon and smash them on rocks. That's out of the Word of God, by the way. And you say, Well, how do I interpret that to my enemy? It, it really gives you, like, I don't know what God's going to do to them. It ain't going to be good. I mean, if they're in the wrong, if they're, anybody who's fighting against God, it's not going to work out well. Maybe not children on rocks, but, you know, something. And so you can put that in God's hands. I don't have to be the victor here. One of the deceits of the devil is that you have to win everything. You have to win every argument. You have to overcome every enemy. You have to always be right. No, you do not. God is the overcomer. God is the one who's always right. God is the one who has victory. I leave it in his hands. At times, he will want me to be weak. Psalms, right? The inspiration of the Psalms. Then there's wisdom. Proverbs. Proverbs has so much wisdom in it. And then, you know, you've got to love Job and Ecclesiastes. It's one of the main wonderful poetry in, all, uh, in both Job and Ecclesiastes, especially Job. Job is full of great poetry, but... Uh, and that's another genre I could have put in here. I didn't put that in now that I think about it. We should be good at Hebrew poetry. Not a lot of people in the West care much about poetry. It's wonderful. Um, 
got to be exposed to it and learn a little bit about it, which hopefully we'll do here. But uh, Job and Ecclesiastes show you that things are going to be real confusing at times, and there's some things that you're never going to unravel. Never. That I don't, I don't get that. Exactly right. And you won't. And the message in both, both Job and Ecclesiastes, is to worship the Lord your God in your confusion and leave it in His hands. And then the last one I put is narrative. It's examples. The example of David. The warning of David. The example of King Saul. The warning of King Saul. The example of all of them. In the narratives, the stories of the Old Testament. So when you put all these together, you actually get a word of God that alters the soul. In the same order now, I have the lost become knowing of right and wrong. The commandments tell me what's right and wrong. Where I had no clue what was right and wrong before, now I know. Fear turns to hope. The promises of God. God's promise turns to hope. The dull become inspirational. Not just in your own soul, but if you're inspirational, by the way, you become inspirational to others. The stupid become wise. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. And the ineffective become powerful. Because I'm, I've been warned by God. I've been shown by God in His Word what works. And I know what to do. So, of course, we see in this that obedience is a key. Humility and obedience. So how am I going to get changed by the Word of God? Here, there's more. It's just an example for me here. but And it's also an example to us of how multifaceted God's Word is. It's not one note. We can get very much caught up as believers in, I need to be strong. That's true. But you also at times need to be weak. I need to be wise. Well, that's always true. Right? But I need to not just be strong. I need to have hope. I need to be inspired. I need to know what's right and wrong. There's so much to this. And that's what it is to be human. See, an AI, as smart as it is, cannot duplicate that. This is what you call a well-rounded, mature believer who knows how to deal with tragedy and prosperity, who knows how to encourage and comfort and also how to rebuke and correct with gentleness, knows how to handle himself in a tough situation and in a very relaxing, easy situation, knows how to handle adversity and prosperity. Knows how to handle people who are themselves weak and also people who are themselves strong. Because I'm not one note. This reminded me of uh, one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek. I mean the real Star Trek, the old one. Now, I kind of like New Generation a little bit. but um, So, it's called The Enemy Within. I had to look up the title to the episode. But it's Jim Kirk. The, you know, the Captain Kirk, he, uh, the transporter beam splits his personality, and when he comes back, he's two people. 
And in one person, it's his aggressive self. And in the other person, it's his gentle, responsive self. And there's two of them running around the enterprise. Of course, they look identical, and there's great fun in this episode with that. But what's a, what, what I loved about this episode is that the aggressive Kirk is violent. He's tyrannical. Right? He's just all brawn and, and power and authority and, and that. And, he, and in that alone, he doesn't work well. The other Kirk, and the, the tyrannical Kirk is telling everybody what to do, like aggressively. The other Kirk, who's like the kind of like weak kid, he's this, it's super emotional. He's like crying all the time. And he can't make a decision. They're like, Captain Kirk, what do we do? And he's like, I don't know. You know I don't know. And, it, and he's just, you know, and that doesn't work. And then, of course, it's Spock or somebody who figures out what happened. And they put them both together in the transporter beam. They, they have a moment where they hug each other. I don't know what that's about. That's got to be a sin. <laughs> yeah. They're kind of loving on each other. Anyway. And, and, then, and then, you know, they come back as one person, and he's Kirk again. See, I, one note is I'm aggressive, but I'm not humble and meek. You need to be both, but at different times and in different situations. How do I figure that all out? God's Word. God's Word will show us. Now, in talking about all of this, did you at one time, and, and you know, I, I think this is very inspirational stuff. At, one, at any time, did you think about what you were going to have for lunch? If you, if you did, you don't have to say, sorry, Pastor, I, yeah, I, was, I wasn't paying attention. I was thinking about lunch. Which, okay. So, look at John. Go to John 4.31. John 4.31. So, John 4, this is the Samaritan woman. It's a wonderful, tender scene, uh, scene of learning for us. Uh, the, uh, the Chosen in their episode that contained this, they did a magnificent job, I thought. John 4:31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples, taking this literally, as did the Samaritan woman, as did the crowd of Israelites, we'll see, they said, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Because the disciples went into town to get food. And he said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Notice that. Now, does this mean that he never ate? Well, of course he did. But he knew that the, the essence of his existence was not what was for lunch. The essence of his existence was the word of God. And when food comes, it comes. I, I, you know what I mean. It doesn't mean that you sit around waiting for someone to bring you food. Of course, it means that, you know, but I think about... Um, in the Roman Empire, when the Roman Empire was in its decline, 
It, this is well documented that the very rich and affluent in the Roman Empire got all absorbed with how to cook food and special food and bizarre food and all that. They got really into food. They became foodies. Of course, the poor have no option for that. The same thing has happened in the West. People have become absorbed with it. And for a lot of people, that's, you know, meal to meal. That's the existence. But where in that lies your purpose? There's a higher, there's something far higher. And while we feed ourselves, I, I, I like tasty food as much as anybody. But it's not the high, it cannot be the top priority. And for Jesus, it is completely not. And hence you tie this to him, he's hungry in the wilderness. And not voluntarily. There's nothing to eat there. But in his hunger, he's not going to turn stones into bread, though he can. He's going to follow the will of his Father. Because that is his top priority, even if he is incredibly hungry. And for us, hunger translates into not just the hunger for food, but for whatever the flesh wants. If what my flesh wants gets in the way of the will of God right now, I say, no, flesh. You will wait, and we will do God's will. So the divine soul, therefore, is much more than food. However, we're not done. I mean, literally, we're not done. But we're not done with building this human. Who is this human? Well, now, and I'll be done here in just a few minutes, I promise. 20 or 30. No, I'm just kidding. We now, because we were looking, we're looking, we were looking at Old Testament. Man shall not live by bread alone, out of Deuteronomy. They have the prophets, they have the Psalms, they have the writings, they have the narratives, they have the proverbs, they have wisdom, Ecclesiastes, Job, Proverbs. They have it. They have all of that, and so do we. But now we have something more. We have the New Testament. I was astounded to find out that the Gospels in the book of Acts take up half the New Testament. I never even thought of that before. Half of it. You know there are a lot of people who ignore the Gospels because they think they're not historical. <coughs> there are some denominations. They only study the epistles of Paul. I think Paul's the only one. But you get a lot out of that. But you're missing so much. Like The Gospels teach us about Christ. We have Christ. We have all of God's Word. We have the New Testament that uh, reveals a deeper knowledge of the Old Testament. Uh, we still learn so much from the Old Testament. The New Testament unlocks some things and makes, makes our appreciation, especially of the prophecies concerning Christ and the future. And we have the book of Revelation. Our eschatology is all wrapped up that we can see from Daniel in the Old Testament, you know, how that's going to play out in the future. Uh, we see, you know, what is this age of mystery that Christ actually talks about in Matthew. He calls it the kingdom of mystery. And here we are. It's the church. We figure that out because we have the New Testament. We have so much. And this added word now brings about us a whole human being. And he says of us, you will never thirst or hunger again. Now, we've got to unravel that and make sure we understand that. Because it seems 
whimsical or far-fetched, isn't it? I mean, of course I'm going to be thirsty, Jesus. Of course I'm going to be hungry. So what thirst and hunger is he talking about? This means that the longing for the earthly things are so low on our scale of of priority and value that because why? Because we're so satiated. Use that word, underline it. We're so satiated with our real life, with Christ, that we no longer care for the others. If we have them, Great. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. It wasn't a sin for Job to be rich, nor anybody. But Paul said to Timothy, teach the rich not to be conceited and to be gracious. And therefore, what do the rich, as those who are so satiated with their relationship with Christ through God's word, because they use this word in all those situations, Like the word of God is with them in their hearts all the time because we're using particular passages just like Jesus. I I think personally trials and tests come upon us hundreds of times a day. Because for me a trial is, yeah, you know, it could be that big one where you're walking through the wilderness. Or like I think of me in the past where my first wife died. That was a trial. That was a big one, right? But Every day I'm tempted with anxiety or to become nervous or worried or whatever. To become lazy or, you know, they're all trials to me. They're all trials. And if I'm going to respond to them properly, I have to have scripture at the ready to respond to that thing. What's the scripture about being lazy? What's the scripture about being worried? What's this about that particular situation and so on? There's, I can have these scriptures at the ready. Go find them. So I'm so satiated with that life that Karl Marx, sorry, buddy, you're wrong. It's not about equality of class or lifting up the laborer. In other words, if if we were Marxist, it would be about government gives me everything that I need. How about Freud? I pick these names because they're so influential on Western culture now. Nobody really talks too much about Freud, but his theories of sexuality are painted all over our culture. Do I need sexual fulfillment? And, you know, I, and those, any, any man, usually men, are going to be tempted in areas about that. And I say, well, look, I'm so satiated with my life with Christ and his word that those things are very low. And believe me, if you have an addiction to anything, it will be so diminished by your love of God's word. Find the words that pertain to your thing and quote them to yourself over and over when you need them. And then there's Darwin. Darwin is, right, survival of the fittest. There's a temptation upon all of us to be the strong one, the right one, the best one. Sorry, buddy, you're not. And you know what? It's okay. Yeah, a pastor gets tempted with the Darwin thing. 
he does. I can share this with you. You know, the pastor wants to be the best pastor of all the pastors of all the world. If you want to do your job right, you know, and then you realize, wait a minute, this is just Satan trying to get me off my, my game here. And I'd be lying if I don't fall, if I have not fallen for it. But I'm, I'm wise to him. I'm very wise to him now. And when I, when I found out that such things, not, not that particular lately, but there's been some other things, but when I found out, when I find things like that that come up in my life, and here, here's another one. After you've overcome one because you've pelted it with the Word of God, and you've overcome it, every time the temptation comes, you're like, you take those scriptures and you beat the hell out of it. Guess what? Another one's coming. Like, I haven't experienced this before. But it's swelling up the same, you know them, the same anxiety, the same fear, the same anger, the same bitterness, whatever. Guess what you got to do? You got to go find another passage. And like I said before, the most exciting thing, it's in here. You know it's in here, not just one either. You can see why God repeats himself so much in the Word. Because if I had to find one sentence in all of this book, right? I don't have have time. I'm going to fail the test so much. Just start looking. And ask me for help if you need help. We'll find it. And, you know, they call them Bible thumpers. That's what you do to your problems. So the Word now, where am I? Yeah. So, I got time. I got just a few minutes. The word now rises to the level of complete satisfaction. My tank is full. Colossians 1.19 says, We are complete in Christ. Nothing left to add. Totally full. But without the word of God, I'm not going to live this way. I have to. Have God's word at the ready for everything. Everything. I can't stress it enough. <clears throat> All right, real quick. Go back. You're in John 4, and so we're just going to stay in John. John 4:14. 4, Go back to our Samaritan woman. Whoever drinks of this water will, <clears throat> whoever drinks of the water I'll give him will never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Wow, what a promise. The water I'm going to give him, he will never thirst, and it will well up. Water springing up to eternal life. And what's her reply? The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I, I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way down to this well to draw water. If you've seen this scene in The Chosen, it showed you know, these massive pots that they would bring to the well, fill up with water. It would be pretty heavy. I mean, what, 10 pounds for a gallon of water or 9 pounds? And it looked with the jars, it's probably like 50 pounds of weight, and she's got to carry on a pole all the way back up the hill to her house. So she says to Jesus, wait, you mean you're going to give me water and I'll never have to come down to this well again? Fetch water for my ungrateful, well, he's not my husband. You know that because you just told me that. Thanks for my fifth, sixth husband. <laughs> and yet, what does he mean here? She doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. 
Will she get it? Yes. She'll get it. She'll understand. And this, I don't, we don't, we're running out of time, but it shows us, look, we're all going to be, when we're faced with these trials and we need the Word of God, we're not going to get it right at the beginning. Or even really understand at the beginning that the Word of God is so powerful to actually do these things in our lives. That will actually, and I did this for years, I learned it more or less as an academic exercise. It became an intellectual thing. But now, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. These things are alive. I think somebody said that somewhere. The Word of God is alive and powerful. You say, yeah, Colonel Theme said it, right? Yeah, the writer of Hebrews before him. Now, go to John 6:35. She doesn't get it, but she will. Never thirst again. Here he says you're never going to hunger. <coughs> well, actually, hunger and thirst. John 6:35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. What's the crowd's reply? Go back to verse 33, where he says, For the bread of God that... It, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. They're farmers in an agricultural economy. Can you imagine that I don't, it doesn't matter if my crops work or not because I'm never hungry? But they didn't get it. They didn't get it and they won't. The majority here of Israel, they won't repent. They won't get it. So what does it mean? Building takes time. Takes time. It takes time. Because it takes time and it takes study and it takes application and failing. uh, Picking yourself back up and going on. Striving to find, all right, I know I failed there. How do I... How do I do this right? Wonderful question. Then you think you got it right and you fail again. You think you got it right and you fail again and so on. <coughs> here's God, isn't God great? Here's God's going to help you out. What's God going to do to help you out in this process of growing? To really figure this out. He's going to give you trial and testing. And in every test is revealed to you, and th- this, is, this is a humble pill to swallow. And every test is revealed to you, is your soul satisfied? Or is it hungry and thirsty? Are you satisfied? Or are you hungry and thirsty? Hunger and thirst go together here. No need to differentiate them. I wanted, and I didn't get what I wanted. Are you satisfied? Answer, no. <laughs> and here's, here's the beautiful thing that I, I this is a, a new discovery for me. That I don't have to be at the level of maturity that I wish I was or think I should be to actually experience this fullness. Because if this, if we look at it that way, all of us have to wait For decades. I mean, how long does it take to become this spiritually mature person who's in the image of Christ? (laughs) Forever is right. 
Like, <clears throat> I've been at this 33 years. I'm, I'm like, I feel like I just started. Like, how long? The beauty of it is, is that you don't have to be there to be full because you have the Word of God that when you claim it, it fills your soul. I can't, I can't even really tell you how it does it. I mean, I, I just know that it does. I know the Holy Spirit does it. I, need, I know you have to have faith and understanding. But it actually fills you. I say, I'm not there yet. You know, there's passages about not being there yet. Not being there yet. Philippians 3. Paul says, I don't consider myself perfect, but I keep striving, reaching ahead to that which lies ahead, forgetting what lies behind, that I may reach the upward call of Christ. He tells us in Philippians 3, he hasn't reached the upward call of Christ. There's one for you. Find the passages that you need to calm your soul. And then you'll rest. I mean, rest me sounds like satiation. Is that a word? So here's our main theme for today. I made it with a few minutes to spare. I've been trying to get my (laughs) message. It's so funny. I've been trying to get my messages to like 50 minutes. It's been a goal of mine. Don't tell me, ask me why. I don't know. It's just a thing. But uh, I'll be at about 55 today. So anyway, not that I know it doesn't matter. I don't even know why I said that. I just distract from what I'm doing here. Man lives by the word of God because it creates in him a divine soul, which is also manifested in his outward physical life. That is that is the idea, main theme that I come up with for the first temptation. Man lives by the word of God because it creates in him a divine soul which is also manifested in his outward physical life. It goes without saying, and I don't have to say this to you guys, that you have to be a believer for this to be true. That you have to be baptized by the Spirit and entered into union with Christ. And so, yes, you have a divine nature because of your position. We're talking here about your experience. The experience of a living, breathing, divine soul. And your key the Word of God. Isn't it how exciting that it's like it's right here in front of me? I don't have to climb some mountain like some Shaolin monk. I don't know where I got that from, Kung Fu. I used to love that show. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I don't have to spend in some Zen meditation for hours and hours and hours. I, I don't have to uh, change my diet. I don't have to do... I, I have to look and by faith find it. Find it and grab hold of it. And it will do the job. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all things that are from you, which are by grace and mercy. We're so grateful, Father, for your word. Your word has truly set us free. And if we are free, we are disciples of yours. Thank you, Father, for your amazing grace. May we take the words that we've read here today and heard here today and become students of your word and look in your word, Father, for the things that we need, the things that we need today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
All right, we'll take our offering, and that'll do it. Thank you all for your continued support of this ministry. I don't always say it, but I know that I am always so appreciative of um, the fact that we can do this. It's uh, wonderful. I thank you all for being a part of it. Let's pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give, and we give as priests, royal priests, whom you have made us to be. And as priests, we worship you in giving. May your, these gifts be used to your glory, <clears throat> and that only. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Christ's name, amen. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our time together. And <clears throat> thank you for our Lord and Savior who came into this world and accomplished all the work which you gave him to do. He followed your word and gave us the ultimate example. May we look to him daily as our inspiration and as our personal, very intimate Lord and Savior. And anyone listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior, please, I, please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the Son of God who became a man and died on the cross for the sins of the world. He didn't remain in the tomb. He was resurrected on the third day. As a resurrected man who ascended into heaven, he reveals that his work in dying for our sins, paying for our sins, was accomplished. And so in Christ Jesus is the only Savior in the world. And therefore, if you believe in Him, not in anybody else, but in Him, and you will be saved. He is the Lord God, the Son of Man, the Son of God, who on a cross, on Calvary in Jerusalem, paid for the sins of the world. Therefore, He paid for your sins. It's a gift. If you accept that gift, you do it by faith. Not by works, but by faith. Thank you, Father, for our time, and thank you for all you do. In Christ's name, amen.